Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security Confidential. I'm your host, Manoj Tandon, and I am elated to have Brian Stoner join us today. Uh, Brian has a lot of experience in the cybersecurity industry. I've known him for nearly 20 years. It's like 2007. That's coming. It's coming upon that. It's a long time since his days at CA, but he's a, a, a great person and has a ton of knowledge about cyber. And he's worked for some fantastic companies that are household names, uh, companies like McAfee and FireEye and Silence, which is now BlackBerry. And he's today joining us from Stellar Cyber. He is uh, running their global channels program. And we have a lot of questions for him and to count on his experience. So stay tuned. And Brian, thanks for joining us this Friday afternoon. Thanks so much for having me, Manoj. It's uh, great to reconnect and, and have a conversation. This should be really fun. Yeah, th this should be. I, I think our listeners are going to be um, interested to hear, you know, we we typically have a lot of sizzles on. We've had some recruiters on. Heck, we even had a laughter yoga coach on the, the program once. Um, but you're the first channel person. Great. Well, I hope I represent our community properly. <laughs> I, hope, <laughs> I, I, I hope so as well. And I can tell you, you know, at Dark Rhino Security, being a MSSP MDR firm, we work with a lot of different OEMs. And some people have great channel programs that are very well thought out. I think others <laughs> probably did not so much so. So my, my opening question to you is, Enlighten us a little bit. You've built these programs for some of the world's largest cybersecurity companies. What are the elements of a successful cybersecurity channel program with an OEM? Sure. So I, I think, you know, first and foremost, it, it kind of starts at the top with the leadership of the company. And the okay. reason I say that is I've worked for a number of manufacturers who say, oh, we're 100% channel, we love channel, but they've never really been able to get their technology to the point where they trust their partners to run an entire sales cycle themselves. And, and so yeah. you, you, you kind of see these things and, and it, it happened at, at a few different big companies that you mentioned, <laughs> you know, at the top of <laughs> in my background, right? Where, you know, you're a partner, uh, a channel person comes to you and says, hey, work with us, right? And then they introduce you to the local enterprise salesperson and the enterprise salesperson takes you to lunch and you start talking about accounts and he's off to the races on your accounts and has nothing to do with you until he thinks he's got a purchase order ready, right? And so I, that's I think- the That's very true. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> No, no, I, I was going to ask you, uh, I have a couple questions, so finish your thought. I, the, there's a couple follow-ups here on this. Yeah, so, so I, I think, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, when, when you're looking at, at a new technology to potentially support in your business, understand where the channel falls in priority with that, with that manufacturer, I guess is my point. Um, because everything that flows from that, how much they invest in their programs, how much they invest in their partners, kind of comes from that top down. And sometimes even though they're a great brand name and they do a great job of creating technology, um, they may not feel that they need the channel as much and they may treat the channel more as fulfillment. So depending on the type of partner that you are, fulfillment's great if you're a, a large account reseller, but if you're a local VAR or a managed services provider, 
you want a partner that's going to, you know, leverage you as part of their channel, not for fulfillment. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, we have gone to great lengths to, we, we tell our customers, we're not VARs. Uh, you know, we, we've opportunistically, we'll do an odd deal here and there uh, that involves shuffling paper back and forth. But the vast majority of everything we do, we're selling a solution. Our product is defense in depth and we want our providers to be on board with the fact that it's a solution. And for them, um, this is all bluebird money because we're running our sales cycles from beginning to end. And with most of our OEMs, we're on the hook for tier one and tier two support, right? So their cost of sale is nothing in this. That's exactly right. And so if they're willing to invest in you to get you to that point where you can be competent in, you know, identifying opportunities, qualifying the opportunities, carrying them through any kind of technology POC, and then closing the deal. Um, that's super high margin business for the partner because they didn't have to spend the money to generate the lead. They didn't have to leverage their pre-sales resources, qualify the opportunity, and they don't have a sales guy holding his hand out for a check at the end of the month once that deal closes either because it's it's been done through the partner. Well, is there, let me ask you, where you, you have um, a salesperson. So the way we've seen it is if we're dealing with an account exec as a partner, typically those programs we run into some difficulty with. Whereas if, when we have a dedicated channel manager that's designed, whose purpose it is, is to enable us and to use us as a means by which our solution is going to market, things work really well. So is there an inherent conflict with having a salesperson be managing a partner or should that be a discrete role? Well, so it, there shouldn't be. And I think one of the things that we've done really well at Stellar Cyber is our salespeople get credit for every managed services provider in their territory. So now if that managed services provider closes an opportunity and supports them, they get credit for that just the same as if they had sold that account direct, right? And we don't do direct sales, but we do, you know, resale through value-added resellers as well as MSSP. So um, what we've done there is instead of having a, a channel manager that gets comped on it and a salesperson that gets comped on it, I'm an overlay to our partners, right? And then our salespeople work directly with the partner. So there's no channel conflict in this new model that we've developed. So you, you know what, that's that's very interesting because a lot of times we have seen, uh, I think we both know some companies on that list that I mentioned where yeah. those conflicts are there with the, with the sales organization. And that's a conflict that's like the kiss of death for a channel program. It creates a lot of problems. It, it is. And, you know, a lot of security technologies are so new um, and, you know, there's not a talent pool to pull from that's going to be able to demo and deploy it, you know, quickly. Right. right. So the manufacturers kind of go out and they do that role for the partner without enabling them. And that, that just, that doesn't build the leverage that the channel's going to provide. Right. It, it, you know, it gives maybe good experience on the first one or two, but when the partner goes and tries to do it themselves or they have challenges or whatever, you know, the, the varnish quickly wears off of that relationship. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, good, 
good insights there. So let me ask you, you mentioned it starts from the top. Is there a expectation mismatch from the leadership uh, when it comes to uh, the channel sometimes? And how do you avoid that? Or how have you built these world-class programs where that mismatch? And what is that mismatch? Well, that's a lot, a lot of questions there. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it kind of goes back to, right, the metrics that the business is using to demonstrate their profitability to their investors. Most of these cybersecurity startups are, you know, Israeli-based or U.S.-based in California. Um, they have, you know, investors, right? And so what I saw maybe three or five years ago is everybody was focused on TCV, Right. Um, okay. because that helps with the cash flow when you're starting a business because your negative cash flow or you're receiving VC money, but the more money you take in from a TCV contract up front, the more profitable you are as you're growing, right? Yep. Now, there has been a fundamental shift because we've just been through our B round of funding and the investors okay. actually put a heavier weight on ARR than TCV when they were evaluating our company. I think that the investors are finally evolving to understand that monthly recurring revenue and annual recurring revenue is more predictable. It grows at a steadier pace and there's much less churn than there is in TCV deals. So um, there, there's this concept called swallowing the fish. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but um, wow, you can take a business that's swallow. focused on TCV like a value added reseller and you try to convert the sales team and the sales into MRR, right? And this is actually a, a concept that the founder of Zora talks about in, in his book that he wrote. He was uh, one of the CTOs at Salesforce and started this company, Zora, okay. that does billing automation work, right? But essentially what, okay. what happens is, you know, in TCV sales, the sales kind of go up at an arc and then reach a peak and then kind of start coming back down. With um, MRR, you, your, your, so your costs kind of go up on that curve, but your revenue, you know, yeah. kind of goes down for a little bit until you get enough to cover your monthly recurring costs. And then you start making more money. And so it makes this, you know, fish. you start making a lot more money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so, um, so, you know, at, at some of the companies that I've worked for, um, you know, I, I don't really want to say the names, but, you know, one of them you know, was an endpoint technology company. We'll just limit it to that, right? Um, yeah. You know, in two years, we grew it from zero to 30 million in ARR. And it was a quarter of the revenue for the whole company, um, more than the TCV recognition was on a quarterly basis. So the executives finally figured that out once, once they saw that. And um, so that's... That's the big uh, dichotomy that I think we've had in the cybersecurity business is just how the investors look at revenue, how the finance guys look at revenue, and and then ultimately what's better for the business. You know, um, and in our world, I can tell you from a valuation perspective, we're seeing other MSSPs, MDR firms out there that are getting anywhere from 12 to 20x on their valuations because of ARR. I mean, for us, at, at like Dark Rhino, our number one metric is how many subscribers do we have? And that's directly correlated to the number of renewals. They have, which means directly correlated to the quality of service. Sure. Because if, 
we're unable to keep the client and deliver a good quality product as our service offering, our ARR goes to hell in a handbasket. And that would, that would not be good. Thankfully, that's not the case, but it's, um, yeah, but you're right. You, you know, initially in a, in that model, there is a lot of costs that you are absorbing until you get to a run rate where uh, you can distribute those costs and absorb them. And at that point, your margins go really, they do really well. Exactly. And, and so, um, you know, I think there's a, a very large appetite in the VC community right now for this type of business because they understand that it's very difficult to get to the smaller customers, um, you know, without having this type of channel. And I think that's one of the big things that I took away from, from that last round is that, you know, people are finally starting to, you know, really weight the impact that a, a managed services provider can have um, in, in their plans. Yeah. Very cool. So and when you're looking at managed service providers versus VARs, do, what do you see as the future? Do you see the future being, uh, the VAR model, or do you see the future being more, especially in the uh, mid markets, being a very solution oriented model? Uh, what's your read on it? I have been in the channels now for a very long time. And <laughs> yeah. the, the, the challenge for the reseller is that the margin on a per line basis keeps going down. So their overall profitability is kind of flattened out or declining. Um, and that's why you see them attempting to either partner or begin to build their way into the managed services um, realm. The challenge that they have is that they have a bunch of sellers who've been comped on, you know, um, mar gross margin for so long. And, and now that's the, and the analogy I use is, you know, and I, I don't mean this in a mean way, right? That's the car salesman model. You know, somebody's in the dealership. Yeah. You got to sell them today. You got to get the margin today, right? Yep. Um, whereas managed services providers have a much longer term relationship with their customers. And it's much more of what I would compare to like an insurance guy, you know, relationship. You know, your, your okay. local state farm. Interesting. You know, it's somebody you go see, you know, when you have a kid or you buy a new house or, you know, you buy a different car, you're, you're, you're constantly working with them, right? So, um, you know, crossing that chasm is difficult because salespeople are very coin operated. They're used to getting paid for what they do. And so the, the challenge is how do you convert somebody, right? So the first step to that typically is, okay, well, you can sell MSSP um, and we'll figure out what the gross margin is on it for a three-year deal and we'll just pay you on that. Okay. That's fine except that that's an expensive model for the reseller because they're paying out on future revenues that they haven't collected yet. Right. Yep. So then that that's kind of the interim and then your overlays go away and then people get used to selling, you know, um, uh, MSSP, MSSP instead. Yeah. Um, but that, that could take a year to two years of adjustments to the comp plan and adjustments to behavior before you get to the ultimate goal. So, um, and you're optimistic. I thought it would take longer than that. <laughs> well, it depends. <laughs> you, know, you and I know some of the same people and we know it would take them a little bit longer, but you know, <laughs> I, I like to be, you know, I like to be positive on these things. I'm a half full guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's fantastic. Yeah. So let me, uh, 
since uh, I asked you about uh, reading tea leaves here a little bit, yeah. what what sectors do you see in cybersecurity doing really well? Where's if your personal bets? Where would you place them? What types of companies? So um, you know, I, in the last um, two years, you know, with COVID, um, I yep. think a lot of customers realized that if the user is no longer sitting behind the firewall on my corporate network. I need better visibility into what's happening with them when they get out into their homes and home offices and, you know, shared workspaces and the stuff that's happening right now. So I would say in the last, you know, year or two, um, there's been a huge tailwind for the EDR manufacturers, right? CrowdStrike, um, Sentinel One, um, BlackBerry Silence, um, Carbon Black. Um, because if your users are no longer behind the firewall and subject to all of the controls that you've developed there, um, you know, you, you need to have better control over your, your users or at least visibility. So I think that's important. I think um, the other two sectors that are really important right now are any kind of cloud security that you can deploy and um, any kind of SaaS security that you can deploy, right? Um, because now if the user's out of the office and let's say you don't have a data center anymore, you've moved everything yep. into a cloud, you know, all your core applications are there and they're using, you know, Salesforce and Box and all these other things, right? Um, one of the things that we've done at Stellar Cyber is we've built detections that can pull in data from all those sources and correlate things that are happening between them so that it gives the SOC the same or better visibility than they would have if that user was sitting behind their firewall in the network. So I think the technologies hmm. that are supporting those remote work um, applications are the ones that are going to be the growth opportunities, at least for the next year or two, I would say. Okay. So I, I would agree with you, except I would just add one more. So I think all the zero trust guys are going are doing really well, right? You, you look at, uh, and I'm going to, there's a whole category of, of people in that, uh, you know, all the guys in the single sign on MFA business have been doing extremely well as their annual, uh, as their results have been showing. And I lumped them into the whole zero trust, uh, yeah, zero trust um, is kind of like XDR right now. Everybody says zero trust, but you know, it's it means something different to everybody. Um, I, I think, you know, from, sure. from from my perspective, right, zero trust is, it, it goes kind of beyond identity, right? It's, you know, network segmentation and some of the sure. things that would prevent lateral movement, right? Zscaler, um, I would put in a zero trust. Yeah, sassy, sector. you know, that, that kind of stuff, right? Um, but, you know, I, I think what people are underestimating is the level of effort to stand that up and make it work properly. Kind of the way identity and access. Oh, and, and the cultural ramifications on the organization are substantial. Yeah. And, and that's something that we run into. We're dealing with a client right now where, you know, there is a compliance mandate, but to get, make that achievable, uh, there's going to be a lot of cultural changes than the wild, wild west approach. <laughs> Well, that it has been. And, and the first and, time the CEO can't get to an application that he was always able to get to, it's going to be a fire drill, right? Sure, it will. And, and, and that's going to happen. And that CEO is going to have to adapt. If, if he or she does not, 
then they won't have a compliant organization. So, you know, there's a, what you're saying is absolutely true. It's a heavy lift yeah. to actually implement some of these things. And you mentioned XDR. So what the hell is that? I, I enlighten us a little bit here. Well, so I see that it, on your website it, it, it means and a green a, alien up there too. <laughs> it, 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 it means about a hundred different things to a hundred different people right now. So I'll, yeah. I'll do my best to try to distill it down for everybody. But, um, um, XDR obviously stands for extended detection and response, right? Um, okay. you know, if, if you, there, there are several different camps that are, that are looking at this, right? There's the okay. EDR guys, right? The, yeah. the EDR guys, um, and this was such a brilliant business. I don't know why I didn't think of this sooner, right? I'm going to build an endpoint technology and because it doesn't stop everything, I'm going to create another technology that records everything that happens on the endpoints. And then because it's so complex that the customer can't manage it, I'm going to charge them to watch it for them. I mean, yeah, who thinks up this stuff, right? So, so that business kind of oh. got commoditized so quickly that those vendors need to ex extend their monitoring into other areas so they can charge more for their services. And so that's why the EDR players compete quite a bit with the MDR providers, you know, and, and that's something that, was always kind of a weird channel conflict that, that I had at some of the endpoint manufacturers that I worked for. So you got the EDR guys and the EDR guys in general, like, um, you know, CrowdStrike with Humio and, um, you know, Sentinel one with Scalar, they bought big databases, right. right? Yep. They haven't created any, you know, detections yet. They haven't created any rules. They just bought these big databases and they slapped XDR on it and said, Shazam! Here it is, XDR. There, yeah. there it is. Right. So, um, so they've got a lot of work ahead of them, right? Then you've got the network guys, right? You've got you know Palo Alto, Fortinet, right? Um, I'll pick on Fortinet for a second. To get XDR and Fortinet, you got to buy FortiSim, FortiAgents, the FortiXDR module, and a few other things, right? So, it's a vertical stack where you have to have everything from them to make it work, right? Same yep. thing with Palo Alto Cortex, right? They want you to have their endpoint agents and all this other stuff before you can get XDR. So that's kind of the, the other camp is kind of that, that stack approach, right? Um, then we've got some, some pure plays that are out there that are just getting going that, you know, um, the VCs are throwing a ton of money at that haven't really built anything yet. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about people that like do cloud monitoring and you can dump all your data into Snowflake and, you know, analyze it or something. Right. Um, yeah. And then um, funny enough, um, we see a lot of the NDR providers starting to look at um, XDR. So you know, like Awake and Exabeam and, you know, uh, Extra Hop, sure. you know, a lot of those guys and, and the SIM It's providers. becoming uh, commoditized as a term. It's an overused term, just like machine learning. Totally agree. Which which I have some questions on too uh, with you, but yeah, I guess the thing would be, so explain, uh, you guys talk about XDR on your website. Uh, what exactly does Stellar Cyber do? What space are you guys in? Right, so, so let me Give just back up and explain the concept of what we started doing first, and then I'll tell you how we came to the XDR messaging, and then I'll talk okay. about what it is, right? So okay. at, at the end of the day, right, and six years ago, we set out to solve the problem of socks are manual today because the tools they use are manual and they're rules based. Okay. 
talking about sin. That's very true. Yep. Okay. So, um, you know, there we saw a huge opportunity where we could leverage machine learning to replace rules and to provide a better experience and higher efficacy alerts and remediation than you could do with, with current SOC technologies. And so six years ago, nobody had coined the term, X, term XDR at all. But we have over 10 data scientists who it's their job to look at different security detections and figure out how we can do it better with machine learning than with rules. Because rules are binary, right? Uh, either, you know, if, if somebody fails to log in five times and I set off an alert, somebody failed to log in five times. But if it's an older guy like me and I do it twice a week because I forgot my, what I updated my password to, you know, the week before, um, you know, I could be triggering alerts and it's not really a, an incident at all. Right. So. Um, so anyway, so we, we built this platform and our first customer was an MSSP, uh, Joe Morin over at SciFlare. Actually, OK, our first customer. Right. And so he was familiar with our founders because. Chow Ming, our CEO, was one of the founders of NetScreen, which okay. spawned Palo Alto and Fortinet and yeah. Imperva and all a these whole other, bunch of you know, great yeah, companies, a whole, right? whole bunch of and and so uh, Chow Ming also founded um, Arrowhive, which uh, if you're familiar with um, wireless security, they built the first wireless you know platform with security built in. So um, oh, I was not aware of that actually. Yeah, so so they created this beautiful company where it's great technology. It's super intuitive, easy to use. You know, it eliminates completely the rules management piece that you have with a SIM. Just completely. But so, so then how do you account for differences in behavior across clients? So what may be uh, something that does not trigger an event at client A should absolutely trigger an event at client B? I, uh, you know, how do you account for that? So um, I'll tell you about, there's, there's like three different categories of machine learning that we use, but there's about seven different types of machine learning that we use. So, okay. The, what you're talking about is uh, what we call unsupervised machine learning. Okay. And unsupervised machine learning is machine learning that baselines everything on that tenant for that particular customer. So when do they normally log in in the morning? When do they log out? Who logs into which machine? Um, where do they log in from? Um, these are just some examples, right? So over a two-week period, I can baseline what normal behavior is. You know, how much ingestion do we normally get from their sensor? How much traffic do we normally see on their network? All that kind of stuff. We can baseline it, and we continually baseline it. It's not just a one-time thing, but after two weeks, all these unsupervised machine learning alerts can trigger. What this does is it allows us to, let's say, tune out all the noise of a thousand suricata rules down to, you know, two things in the um, IPS that need attention. You know, that's, that's the whole benefit of using machine learning instead of rules, right? So that's one type of machine learning. The other type of machine learning is, um, supervised machine learning, where we can train it okay. what's good and what's bad, right? So that's that's pretty simple. Don't you need a large data set to do supervised machine learning? 
Yeah, and uh, we get that data set from uh, over a dozen different um, threat intelligence sources that are integrated into the platform. And we have a sandbox that's built into the platform. So um, part, of the, part of the reason we have this ability to use the machine learning so efficiently is because as we're ingesting data, we're not just ingesting straight syslog data. We're actually taking the metadata out of the syslog comparing it against those dozen different sources of threat intelligence. If we don't have a reputation, we can run it through the sandbox. If it's a zero day, we'll highlight that in the record itself. But we've created this um, record format called Interflow that's based off of JSON, where we standardize all those fields into one record type. And so that record okay. type goes into the data lake and I can use any type of machine learning I want to query that data. So, okay. so that's where, you know, in a, in a current environment, you write a rule, you update the rules, you look at threat intelligence and create new rules, and then you monitor, right? And then when something hits, then you compare it against threat intelligence to see if it's, you know, bad or not, right? We've automated that whole process. So now the analyst only gets high value alerts that already have all the threat intelligence in the alert itself. So they don't have to go looking for things. It's all correlated and built in, into that Interflow record. So, well, what's the third type of AI then? So the third and type then of then AI- I'll ask you another question. Yeah, the third type of AI is called graph machine learning. And we're the first company that's introduced it in a production product. Um, but what graph machine learning does is it can key off the related Interflow record fields in multiple alerts and connect them automatically automatically into an incident. And then we can score huh. the severity of the incident and prioritize those incidents for the SOC. So now instead of them having to correlate alerts, like if you do incident management today in most platforms, it's a workbench. You pull the alerts in, sure. you connect them, and then you create your visual representation. We've been able to yep. figure out a way to do that with machine learning. So um, your analysts can still play with that image and add things to it, take things away from it, change it if they need to. But the first level of uh, identification is done by the machine learning instead of the analyst. So uh, let me ask you this, how, uh, you know, our experience with, I assume you folks are completely cloud-based and our experience with the cloud has been that there becomes two limitations that make the solutions exorbitantly expensive. And that is, you know, the cost of compute power and the cost of storage, specifically when we're talking about SIM technology. You know, because we get into uh, cases where we, there is an there's a regulatory obligation, like in banking, that we have to keep the logs for a year. There's, there's no way around that. We got to do that. Yep. There's certain high trust rules that we have to, to follow whether we want to or not. How, how have you been able to avoid those pitfalls of storage and compute power as it goes in as far as cloud? Sure, so um, I, I think you know two things. One is if you're using disparate data sets and trying to create multiple rules to run across it, it's gonna take really high compute to achieve the goal, right? Um, because we've done the normalization process on the inbound data, 
and stored it in a standard format, the computes, I'm not going to say it's a lot less, it's maybe a third less than a SIM. Um, but that, that piece of the um, equation um, is, is reduced because of that ingestion process that we do. Now, to your point, there are customers that need the raw logs, right? Not the interflow logs. Right. So we right. actually set up our sensors so that we can just automatically forward off all the raw logs to cold storage, and then we'll just pull back the metadata for the interflow record. So, you know, they okay. can keep it in extremely cheap cold storage. Now, the interflow records themselves, we can compress. So now, once we get it into cold storage, we can actually compress it before it gets there. And we store it on a per tenant basis so you can pull it back and do forensics on older data if you need to, um, you know, kind of like okay. rehydrating it. But, you know, we're, yeah. we've been able to figure out how to compress that data for the storage on the back end. And today, we don't even offer a SaaS service. It's all software. So all of our customers are running it either in public clouds, on virtual infrastructure in their data center, or on hardware. So... Um, oh, we, we offer all so that's, different that's aspects. one way to solve the data localization issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the other things that we did that I think was pretty forward looking is, you know, we've always had multi-level multi-tenancy, right? The, the partner has root level access. Then you'll have, you know, customers and partners below them that may also have tenants underneath them. So we created a, a partner tenant level, right? But in addition to all of that, we have um, customers who have, uh, entities in, you know, um, Europe or Asia that need to keep the data local. So yeah. we have a, a feature in the data processor called Data Processor Central, where you can monitor remote um, instances in one console. So not only- Even though you, it might be coming from China or Japan or wherever it may be. Yeah, you can, you can deploy, we call it a data processor. You deploy it out there and then you can monitor it from your SOC centrally. As it is, as if it was a, another tenant in your local network, it's all the same. Okay, but the data is localized in that region, so that issue is completely avoided. Yeah, you're just, you're just, it's you're um, viewing a screenshot of the metadata remotely. That's all you're doing. Now, it doesn't uh, from what I remember, GDPR has some strangeness about that itself. Even the metadata is, unless it's anonymized, it's a it's a pain in the ass to deal with, but. Yeah, no, I mean, and we, we have multiple partners who work through that and SOC2 and everything else, right? So, you know, yeah, we're very familiar. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and eventually- Can I, do you have- yeah. Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, uh, do you have any metrics on how much the workload reduction has been with your technology, with it? So I'll, I'll just give you an example of a partner that I talked to last week in person uh, and actually another partner okay. I talked to this morning. So um, the partner that I um, met with last week, they're in Dallas and they've been doing a POC with us. They're getting ready to purchase the platform and they have three full-time analysts whose entire job is rule management and threat and tell. And this yeah. is going to completely eliminate the need to have those. So they're going to be repurposed to be um, level two SOC analysts on the platform instead of doing threat intel and, and rules management. So, you know, right there, I think he's got a team of about 18 people 
So that's a pretty big, you know, percentage wise, you know, reduction in the number of people that he needs to run the platform and then he can actually grow. So I have partners who've told me that they can uh, handle three times as many customers on our platform with the same SOC team as they could with a SIM technology. Okay. So you can grow with it with fewer resources because of the automation, right? My, I guess uh, the counterpoint to that would be is I don't know what I'm missing in that approach, right? I mean, I'm, we're really relying heavily on AI that it is getting at least everything that a human would. Yeah. So, uh, and I don't know, there's something, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, there's you know, a mental trust block there. Trust, so, trust, but observe. Right. So, um, yeah, so to, to your point, um, most solutions that deploy machine learning are kind of black box, right? Ours is completely open. You can, you can tune our machine learning if you need to, um, every machine learning detection that we have, if you click on a little question mark by it, it'll tell you all the fields that generated it and how we calculated it. So we're very open about that. Um, when I started here a year ago, um, when we were bringing over, um, you know, partners that had maybe a SIM that they'd been running for a long time and they're really proud of their rule set and it was, you know, yeah. a thousand rules long. And so we'd bring it into the platform and we'd recreate all those rules and we'd run it for 90 days and we'd say, okay, let's compare what we saw, right? And inevitably tons of false alerts, handful of alerts on the you know machine learning side and they would sunset the rules you know after that quarter of of you know kind of viewing them side by side right and so i think you know people are now getting to the point where once they do the poc and they see how easy it is to tune a customer like when, when you onboard a customer now how long does it normally take to tune the environment oh it takes us uh I'm going to say it's at least six weeks. Six weeks to go through all of it. Yeah, I mean, you got to collect all the records, find all the, you know, exceptions. Where we run into is a lot of exceptions because a lot of our clients have never had a sim. Where we primarily are mid market, and they've never had a sim, so we don't. They there are no rule sets, so we're starting off with our rule sets that's based on our experience got it and then we got to sit there. there and yeah. tune it from there yeah yeah so Absolutely. with our with our machine learning you can deploy it the first week in about two hours you can let it run for the first week we usually have a touch point with the customer for an hour answer any questions they have second week the unsupervised machine learning is tuned and it takes about an hour to tune the environment and then you're done for full production. I, I'm going to have to check this out at some point. Yeah, you got to. <laughs> this is kind of cool. Yeah. No, and, That's uh, really cool. That's really, do, do you guys have like a uh, uh, online demo our listeners can go and listen and uh, just watch? or Yeah, if you go to Stellar Cyber. channel or something. Yeah, StellarCyber.ai. There's all the videos you would want to, you know, see. And uh, if you reach out to me personally, I'm, I'm happy to schedule the right person to do a demo for you. Um, my email address is super simple. It's just Brian, B-R-I-A-N at StellarCyber.ai. That's it. Well, that's pretty easy. Mm -hmm. Now watch, you're going to get flooded with stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 All these so, listeners, I, I'm a little, uh, you know, self-conscious today. It's a big honor. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Um, 
you've spoken a lot about AI. What, where do you see AI going? I, I get, I'm going to guess that you're very uh, pro AI and you and you see it changing the face of cyber. But what are your thoughts on it? So I think it's going to continue to mature, and um, I think uh, as people do more zero trust, there's going to be more detections that are going to need to be built. I think it's going to continue to evolve and get even more, you know, sophisticated. I think that all of the companies that talk about having a program uh, around XDR are going to have to start doing the hard work that we've been doing for six years of actually building those detections. Mm. And they're going to realize it's not as easy as they think it's going to be, right? So I, I think, um, you know, the bigger players, it's going to take them a couple of years to catch up, but they'll catch up, you know? I mean, everything that we've built on our platform, you could build in Splunk or Elastic or some other platform. It would just take you six years. Oh, to hell, it. you could probably build it in Excel if you had enough resources. But... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, but that's not realistic, right? I mean, Splunk is, uh, that's the Godzilla of the sim world, right? I mean, you're, that's a project, man, and and a big one. Well, You're buying a Bentley. Yeah, and and so you know. And is it, it needed? That's a uh, you know. Well, and 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 so ingestion is a, the expensive part of Splunk, right? I mean, in addition to the development yeah. piece, right? So um, we work uh, with a, a lot of piece of it. A lot of partners who um, implement our technology to pre-filter all the logs and just send the alerts into Splunk so they can use the workflow that they built. Huh. That's an intro. I was going to ask you about use cases. That's a very interesting one. Yeah. I mean, it's so they're running both. It's a simple one, but you know, we pre-filter everything. We can compress the storage and make it a lot cheaper. The, the alerts that they're ingesting is a fraction of what they were ingesting before. So they can use that money to, I don't know, develop models on how much they're going to sell next quarter instead of spending it on security. I'm sure the guys at Splunk are grateful to you for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, Brian, we're at, uh, you know, the hour here, and I wanted to give you an open platform to plug anything that you would like to talk about. Um, so it's your floor, man. I mean, if you got any events coming up, any if you're involved with any books or anything else that's going on out there, let us know. What well, so uh, for anybody who's going to IT Nation next week, I'm uh, sponsoring the uh, IT uh, block party that's on uh, Wednesday night. And if you go to my LinkedIn, um, there's a, an invite there that I did in a post where you can register to, to go. Um, so anybody's welcome. It's uh, if you're going to IT Nation, it should be a lot of fun. Um, so that's Florida, right? Yeah, that's in Orlando. Yep. Uh, next oh. Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> coming up. Coming up quick. Coming in hot. <laughs> It'd be nice to get away. <laughs> yeah so um so so that's the first we'll put thing. the links in the show notes because this will go this will air on uh monday okay so we'll make sure that the show notes have the links to it nation perfect yeah and and i'll send you the link to the block party that's tracking for us too please do so so that and um if you're at all interested in stellar cyber or learning about you know machine learning and security um something I know a lot about, right? So um, you can reach out to me at uh, brian at stellarcyber.ai. Um, you know, since I've joined Stellar in the last year or so, we've brought on 60 partners around the world. And so um, it's it's been a really great experience. We've got some really great partners that you can meet 
and learn how they're using the technology. Um, so definitely reach out to me about that. And then finally, um, I do advisory work. So if you're a manufacturer or a salesperson that wants to understand how to get into the MSSP market and you know what's important to them and you know how they consume the technology, uh, you'd be amazed how many people don't really understand it. And um, you know, I, I do advisory work on the side to help uh, people do that. So um, any help Fantastic. that you need, you know, we could do a quick, you know, couple of sessions and, and give you some good direction too. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, we'll make sure to put a link to your LinkedIn page as well. Yeah, there, so that'd be great. People can reach you there and your email. For sure. That's you've been. It's been wonderful, Brian, to have you here on Friday, and I hope uh, you have a great weekend. And and we hope to have you back uh, again in the future. Yeah, no, it's point. it's been a long time since we've been together, so I, I can't wait to you know grab a beer with you soon. I think it'd be. Really fun conversation. Thanks so much for having me today. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, we'll get you actually into our our studio studio in Dublin, Ohio, where we have uh, a lot of uh, good things to imbibe. We used to do uh, whiskey and whiteboards every Friday. Oh, now and, you're talking. Uh, then, and, and unfortunately, COVID put the kibosh on that entire marketing program. But we were left with a whole bunch of bottles of bourbon and people walk into our <laughs> office and they're like, are these people cybersecurity or are they just alcoholics? Uh, yeah. What's the problem? Uh, and th we're not. I, I mean, <laughs> it's just, it was a marketing thing. But when you mentioned getting a beer, I thought, you know what? Maybe it'll be a bourbon instead and, and we'll. <laughs> well, so uh, so actually I do love bourbon. Uh, by my vacation home, there's a distillery that makes awesome bourbon in Galena, Illinois. Uh, it's called Blom Brothers. But um, I do have whiskey glasses with the stellar cyber on them so i'll see if i can get some of those mailed out to you so you can uh, thank you use use our glasses enjoy some of that bourbon i would we would love to have them we'll, we'll, we'll make old fashions when i get there it'll be fun a couple of old sounds guys. that i uh, see that, that sounds like a great plan brian well, old guys have an old fashions that sounds like a new show yeah <laughs> well hey then you have a great weekend and it was great talking Thanks, Manoj. Great to great to catch up with you again.